I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas has expired after seven days and fighting has resumed. But even during the pause in fighting in Gaza, violence continued in the West Bank. More than 200 Palestinians in the West Bank have been killed since the Hamas attack on the 7th of October, according to the Palestinian Authority. Earlier in the week, two children, ages 8 and 14, and two members of armed groups were killed by Israeli forces in the West Bank. And incidents of settler violence are on the rise, according to human rights group B'Tselem. Fuad Muadi is a farmer and the head of international relations for the city of Ramallah, and we've reached him in Taibe, outside of Ramallah, in the West Bank. Fuad, hello. Hello, hello, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. How are you doing? These have been a very difficult few weeks. I mean, I'm, I'm relatively fine nowadays. Yeah, the, it has been very rough in the last few weeks in here. Tell me about your farm um, and, and, and what you farm on that land. I come from a farmer family. And we've been working our lands for generations. Uh, the lands of our village are divided into three. Uh, one third is for the crops, one third is for fruits, and one third is for the olives, uh, as olives are the main and most important economically uh, harvest of the year. What does it look like if you were to describe your land? Um, what does it look like right now? Um, the main, the main site that we have is a sea of olives. That's, that's the best uh, description I could give you. It's about, um, uh, hills and valleys, all full of olives. You cannot find one, uh, a square meter that is actually with, with good dirt without finding an olive in it. When was the last time that you were able to access your fields? As you mentioned, the, the last few weeks have been... You use the word rough to describe it. So when was the last time you were able to get into those fields? Um, well, it depends. You see, um, my village is surrounded by three settlements. So three Israeli settlements that are actually built on the lands of my village. One of these settlements is built on my lands, the lands of my grandfather. That was taken in 1973. Until that year, that was the last year we got our wheat out of that land. It was the main land we used to use to uh, grow our wheat and eat our bread, you see. And since then, we cannot approach that land. Actually, there are now houses on that land. And next to the settlement, just at the entry of that settlement, since, since 2016, uh, settlers have been attacking us, aggressing us, and burning our crops. Uh, and the lands surrounding the settlement, and I cannot approach them. Then I have also the olives that are next to the settlement. And uh, since October 7th, it was like, uh, th this is the season of, 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 of harvesting the, the olives in, in Palestine. And uh, all the village has tried to go and harvest the olives. And we were all attacked up until now, only in my village. We have about uh, eight people who were attacked. Uh, two of them are in grave state in hospital. And uh, so um, <clears throat> what happens is that we try to go and harvest our olives 
and suddenly the settlers will show up uh, armed with guns and uh, in groups of 50 people and they will attack they would attack anyone who they see most of the people who were injured are elders uh, above 60 years old or a child for example a girl of 13 years old from the bedouin community in my village and uh, they would start attacking us so we would run away and whoever falls behind he is attacked gravely in other villages many were killed actually i lost uh, a neighbor uh, uh, what she was coming back from her work actually because we cannot um, I'm, I'm moving to another subject. Uh, I'll be back right to my subject. But we cannot move from one village to another or from one town to a city. All the roads are being attacked constantly by settlers. And so basically, after 6 p.m., you would see uh, rarely any uh, uh, um, car traveling on the road. We try alerting each other through WhatsApp messages. Um, but also if we are found on a checkpoint having um, WhatsApp groups for alerting each other about settler attacks or um, roads being ambushed by settlers, uh, we would be punished by the Israeli soldiers at the checkpoints as well, you see. So uh, when I say rough, it's all that together. Mm. And uh, yeah, so approaching uh, the land is risking our life. And we have been attacked in my village six times since the 7th of October, the last big um, uh, attack happened on 3rd of November and one last attack last week, actually. You talked about the violence um, from settlers. Do you worry that young people will respond in kind with violence? Yes, of course. Of course I worry about that because, I mean, uh, it's not really something planned, but, you know, um, as I told you, uh, 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 when settler attacks started happening, they would also attack villages during the night and burn the the, 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 the cars and, and the houses. So um, this violence would create us to try to defend ourselves. And uh, that is what has happened since 2021, where we have seen some groups of young people that have had their friends, their cousins killed, and they would actually put some money together and buy some weapons to uh, defend themselves instead of rocks with weapons. And this is how violence would bec uh, become greater and greater. I mean, I've seen this during the Second Fada where people started protecting themselves with stones and ended up with, 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 with machine guns. And we're going there again. Just before I let you go, what, what do you want from the international community as this unfolds? Um, what do you want the world to be doing to protect the safety of Palestinians uh, in the West Bank? Well, uh, I think it's very simple because, you know, in 1967, uh, the West Bank was occupied. And since then, 200 million, don uh, I mean, 2 million dunams were taken away from our lands. We, as farmers, you know, and one dunam is 1,000 square meters. So you make the uh, calculations. It's huge. It's it's like two times Gaza, you know, and they're going at it. It's it's a clear policy. They have actually a say for it in Hebrew that goes, ha-maximum adama ha-miminimum aravim, ha-maximum aravim be-ha-minimum adama, which means the maximum of land, we will take the maximum of land with the minimum of Arabs in it and then put the maximum of Arabs in the minimum 
of land. That's actually a definition of ethnic cleansing. They're putting us in ghettos. They're transferring the Arab communities into dense populations and creating new Gazas. And I don't want to be a new Gaza. I had enough of that, you know. But um, the United Nations General Assembly has made a, a clear resolution about this. 194, and they're voting for it every year. <laughs> what would be great for the international community is to abide Israel to international law, for it to end the occupation. If you end the source of violence, the cycle of violence will break, you know. But if you try to find a half remedy, you will only engrave the situation. If people are left alone, they would go back to harvesting their olives instead of trying to, 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 to upscale violence. You know, The violence is brought to them. They uh, do not seek the violence out of their home, homes and towns. So what would be great is just having Israel to respect international law and abide to international community resolutions and security councils and uh, decisions. And, and that's it. That, that, that would for forever break the violence and create a peaceful solution. Fuad, thank you for talking to us. I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, from you. Thank you very much. I thank you for caring and asking me these questions. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Bye. Fuad Muadi is a farmer and head of international relations for the municipality of Ramallah. He was in Taipei, where his family's land is. During the ceasefire, Hamas has freed Israeli hostages in exchange for Israel returning Palestinian prisoners. Many of those Palestinians released are from the West Bank. Diana Butu is a Palestinian-Canadian lawyer. From 2000 through 2007, she was legal advisor to the Palestinian Liberation Organization's peace negotiating team. Diana, hello to you. Thanks for having me. Who are some of the Palestinian prisoners who have been released? Well, the vast majority of them are actually children. These are are uh, mostly boys who are under the age of 18, and the the vast majority of them have actually never been convicted. Many of them were held um, pending trial. Some of them were as young as 13 years of age. And the reason is, is that Israel has a system whereby if a child is suspected of things like stone throwing, the vast majority of them were stone throwers, they can be held in prison pending trial. And that being held in prison can take up to 18 months. The other segment, of course, were women, uh, many of the women who are either people who had never been convicted, who are held under a system called administrative detention, which means held without charge or without trial. And so some of them had actually been convicted. Tell me more about the administrative detention, because the Israeli authorities have labeled the people that they've held as terrorists. They say that they're people who are a threat to Israel. What is the process by which so many people could be held without charge? The system for Palestinians differs very much from the system inside Israel. In 1967, Israel placed all Palestinians under military law and set up military courts. And what that means is that for if uh, a Palestinian is deemed to have, quote-unquote, violated any one of the 1,700 military orders, they can be put into prison. Now, there's a system also um, that applies only to Palestinians called administrative detention. And what that means is that if you are suspected that you may in future carry out some attacks, including stone throwing or even belonging to a political party, 
then the Israelis can pick you up and throw you in prison without you ever knowing what the charges are and without ever facing a trial. And they can hold you for six months with it renewable every six months indefinitely. Some of my friends have been held in, in administrative detention for 11 years, which means 11 years of their lives gone without charge, without trial, just simply thrown in prison because Israel has some suspicion. In their process of reviewing administrative detention, Israel frequently uses secret evidence. And so all of these claims that somehow these people are a threat, if there's such a threat, why isn't that they've ever produce the evidence? Why is it that they don't ever formally charge them? Why is it that they don't go through a process of trial? And the reason is, is because nobody's ever really forced them to. Mm. And you can end up having people lose many, many, many years of their lives under this process of administrative detention. Within the West Bank right now, how much support does the Palestinian Authority and its leader, Mahmoud Abbas, have among Palestinians? Oh, very, very little. Very, very, very little. little. The very little. Yeah. The Palestinian Authority was, it was created in the 1990s for simply a five-year period. It was supposed to only govern for five years. And then, this is the part that I was involved in, there was supposed to be freedom and, and statehood for Palestinians and to be replaced by a new government. So now this government has been in place or this system has been in place for 30 years. So its temporary has become permanent. This particular president, Mahmoud Abbas, he was elected in January of 2005. And since January of 2005, we haven't had presidential elections, which means come this January, he will be in office for 19 years, even though he was only elected for a four-year period. So based on that alone, his popularity has plummeted. But it's more than that. It's also that uh, this Palestinian Authority, because it was supposed to be temporary, doesn't really do a whole lot. It it hasn't represented Palestinians well. It hasn't uh, represented Palestinians well on the international stage or in media. And most importantly, Palestinians don't feel that this authority is protecting them in any way, particularly in the face of Israeli settler attacks or attacks on the part of uh, Israeli soldiers. So his popularity has plummeted. And there's no way to, to revive it in any way, shape, or form. And so in the face of that, there are some people in the West Bank, perhaps many people in the West Bank, who are very grateful for Hamas securing the release of those prisoners. You see images of some of the freed prisoners coming out wrapped, for example, in a Hamas flag. How does that complicate things? It complicates it greatly. And this is the problem is that these people didn't have to be in prison. When you look at the profile of these kids who've been released, as I said, many of them, the vast majority, we're talking 70% of them, if not 80% of them, have not been convicted of anything. And and so it doesn't have to be that way. They could, the Israelis could have either released them or not picked them up. The problem, of course, is that the only time that Israel actually releases Palestinian political prisoners is when it's forced to do so. And it's only ever done so either in the face of a peace agreement, which was in the 90s, or in the face of a prisoner exchange, such as what happened when the Israeli soldier was, was taken inside Gaza in, uh, inside 2006. And that's it. And so here's where the problem is, is that if Israel is truly interested in propping up the Palestinian Authority, as we often hear that it is, or the international community says that they want to support the Palestinian Authority, they're not doing a very good job of it. If you ask any Palestinian, they, they want to be free. They don't want to be living under Israeli military control any longer. And any political party that brings us that much closer to uh, 
um, to liberation, to freedom, is going to be the, the political party that gets there, that gets support. So right now, yes, Hamas is on a high, but in terms of the long term, it's, it's a little bit more complicated. And we're almost out of time, but when you hear the U.S. President Joe Biden say that the Palestinian Authority should govern a united West Bank and Gaza, what do you make of that idea? I wish it would be true, but let's step back. On October the 6th, the day before the attack, the Palestinian president was effectively persona non grata to the U.S. Uh, they had not been doing anything to to prop him, to help Palestinians. And so for them to now come and say it's up to the Palestinian Authority to take control is the equivalent of having Palestinians go into Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank, and that's not going to happen. I do, however, think that we need to be looking at this much more holistically. We can't just be looking at Gaza as Gaza. We need to un address the underlying causes, and the issue of Palestinian freedom has got to be the end result of all of this. Diana, glad to talk to you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Diana Butu is a Palestinian-Canadian lawyer. We reached her in the West Bank. We did reach out to the Israeli embassy in Canada about the detention of Palestinians who were held without charge and why a minor would be held without charge. We didn't get a response. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel again this week, holding talks with leaders there. Yesterday, he visited the West Bank and met with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Brian Finucane is a senior advisor to the U.S. program at the International Crisis Group, a former attorney advisor to the U.S. Department of State. Brian, hello to you. Good morning. U.S. President Joe Biden said attacks by, in his words, extremist settlers in the West Bank were pouring gasoline on the Middle East. What do you make of the use of that language by the U.S. president now? Well, it's strong rhetoric, but it misses the point in a few respects. First, to focus solely on violence by the settlers uh, obscures the fact that the problems in the West Bank, the escalating violence there, are largely driven by the state, by Israel. Most of the deaths are attributable uh, post-October 7th to uh, the Israeli military. The, the um, detentions without charge, which you heard your prior guest addressing, those are the responsibility of the government of Israel. And then indirectly, the um, Israeli military either stand by and does not interfere or fails to impose consequences, fails to arrest or detain um, settlers who are um, conducting attacks uh, and, dis and displacing Palestinians in the West Bank. How unusual, and we'll talk more about the bigger picture, but how unusual is it for the U.S. president to use that kind of language in talking about what's going on in the Middle East? Well, it's, it's been unusual in, in terms of the Biden administration and the predecessor administration, the, the preceding administration of, of Trump. But if you go back and, and um, decades, you know, it was a longstanding public position of the U.S. government that the West Bank was occupied territory. And as such, under international law, the Fourth Geneva Convention applied to that territory and protected um, the population of that territory. And one of those protections was the prohibition on the transfer of the parts of the population, the population of the occupying, occupying power into that territory. So in other words, the longstanding view of the U.S. government was that the settlement project in the West Bank violated international law. And that was laid out in the 1978 memo under the Carter administration that remained on the books for decades. 
even if the the um, U.S. government did not always um, publicly announce that stance, it remained the internal view, and that was overturned during the Trump administration, with who withdrew that that memo. And so the, the long-standing position, again, was that the, this is occupied territory, and Israel had obligations under international law with respect to the population of that territory, including, relevant here, um, to maintain public order and safety for the population of the West Bank. When you take a look at what's happening right now, how effective do you think those policies have been? Um, they've been completely ineffective. And I think in terms of um, talking about pouring gasoline on the fire, they have poured gasoline on the fire. The, you know, the, the, in the past... Um, U.S. administrations of both parties have imposed conditions on U.S. aid to Israel based on what's happening on the ground, including in the West Bank. So, for example, the administration of George H.W. Bush withheld loan guarantees to Israel until he was assured that the funds would not be used to construct settlements in the West Bank. So unconditional support is, is a recipe not only for violations of international law, but it's a recipe for further destabilization in the region. So what measures is the Biden administration looking at to try to de-escalate tensions in the West Bank? So thus far, what they've announced are visa bans, potential visa bans, no action thus far. And they, these visa bans, to be clear, would be imposed on um, settlers who are engaged in violence. Um, r- reportedly, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken told the Israeli government that the U.S. has concrete pl- plans to impose bans within weeks. Um, but these bans would not even apply to U.S. citizens, and, and U.S. citizens are among the settlers responsible for the violence in the West Bank. Uh, it, there have been some discussion of, of other um, directives to uh, the cabinet members and the, and the U.S. government to consider other actions, but we haven't heard anything concrete yet. And as I said, uh, to date, the U.S. government has not taken any steps. How is that complicated by the fact that there are senior members of the Israeli government, including the security minister, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who are themselves settler activists? Well, I guess it goes back to something I said earlier, mm. which is that focusing on settler violence itself from misses the big picture, that this is the, the violence and destabilization and escalating uh, hostilities in the West Bank are largely a function of state policy by the Israeli government. And so to to focus solely on actions by private citizens uh, really misses the the larger context and misses the underlying cause for what we're seeing in the West Bank. And and this tags on something when your prior guest mentioned that, you know, if the U.S. wants um, the Palestinian Authority to uh, reinvigorate Palestinian Authority um, to somehow take over in Gaza on the day after, that all seems very far fetched at this point allowing and perpetuating the violence and, and destabilization and escalation in the West Bank, you know, makes that that already remote possibility even more remote because it further undermines the legitimacy of the Palestinian Authority. Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East now, uh, meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu, meeting with Mahmoud Abbas as well. What do you think he's hoping to achieve? Well, uh, he, he was trying to convince the Israeli government, amongst other things, uh, to rein in future operations in Gaza to reduce civilian casualties, to conduct those operations in a more um, discriminate and proportionate manner. Um, operations, as you noted earlier, have resumed. Uh, there's reportedly heavy bombardment uh, of Gaza. What, what, um, what does that tell you about how much influence he actually has in the region? I think the U.S. has very little influence right now, or is choosing to exercise very little influence at the moment over Israeli military operations. And I think that's in large part because U.S. support has been unconditional. While the U.S. has, for many weeks now, uh, both publicly and and privately, admonished the 
um, Israeli government to minimize civilian casualties, to comply with the law of war. There's little evidence that those admonishments have had any effect on the operations, given the staggering death toll we see in Gaza, given the mass destruction and displacement there. And so continuing to issue these admonishments without um, you know, brandishing the threat of any conditions on U.S. support seems you know, utterly pointless. There was a report done by the International Crisis Group. It talked about how Israel's action could potentially lead to an even more violent form of resistance in future. What are you most concerned about at this point? It, it, uh, how worried are you, for example, that the fighting might spread into a wider Middle East conflict? Well, I, I want to be clear, the fighting has already spread. Mm -hmm. So we have fighting on many fronts, not just Gaza. We have fighting between Israel and Hezbollah in the north. We have the um, escalating violence in the West Bank. And then we have violence um, against U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. There was a, a month-long lull um, that ended in the midst of this uh, fighting in Gaza in, in mid-October. And since then, there's been a dramatic uptick in attacks by Iran-backed groups on U.S. forces in both Iraq and Syria. Um, and so the, the, that, and it's notable that, that those attacks ceased during the, the recent pause, humanitarian pause in Gaza. And so we already have a wider regional war. The, the U.S. Um, government you know, should have a matter of enlightened self-interest, seek to, to reinstate the ceasefire, reinstate the humanitarian pause, um, because that, you know, enabled the pause on attacks on U.S. forces as well. But as we discussed earlier, it doesn't seem, from your perspective, as though either the United States wants to or that it has the ability to exercise that influence. It is not willing to exercise that influence. But it could. It could, yes. And that, would mean, it, it, that, would, that would mean conditions on aid, for example? That would be conditions on aid, for example, yes. Do you see um, that, just finally, we're just about out of time, but do you see, as, as this conflict resumes, do you see that happening at any time soon? Uh, there is growing discussions of that within the U.S. government, within you know, members of Congress. I think if we return to levels of violence we saw in the earlier um, stages of the campaign in Gaza, I think those calls for conditioning aid will grow louder. Um, and I'm afraid that's where we're headed, that um, we're going to see a resumption of extreme violence in, in Gaza, as you saw earlier in this campaign. Brian Finnecan, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Brian Finnecan is a senior advisor to the U.S. program at the International Crisis Group, former attorney advisor to the U.S. Department of State. He was in Washington, D.C. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.